0: Hey there, listeners. Drew here from EM Over Easy, and we have a special podcast joined by Andy Little with a very special guest, Ross Fisher, and a peanut gallery crowd. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you. You are a incredible surgeon, from all we have heard, but also a presenter extraordinaire. And that's really what we want to talk about on the podcast today, which is giving better presentations, medical education and presentations in general. So so thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. I would question the incredible surgeon. I am quite good at presentations though.
2: So, so Ross, you're, you're a pediatric surgeon and you have kind of taken over this idea of educating people around the world uh, about presentations. So what was it about presentations where that became your thing? Presentations suck. I think uniformly
1: we all know that and um, when I was writing my master's my professor said to me anyone can have an opinion but if you can write three paragraphs about that opinion then you'll start to understand why you think what you think so I think like most people I recognize that presentations suck and then I started to try and figure out why they suck and then once I figured out why they suck then I could start to make them better
0: so walk us through your thought process. Let's start from the basics. Why do we suck so much at giving presentations?
1: Psychological science has been studying presentations for probably the last 30 years. And the, the science is simple and obvious and well-recorded that most of what we do in terms of basic PowerPoint sucks. So um, simple things like the construction of our presentation, the P1 as I call it, the story, for virtually every presentation is simply a collection of facts. A collection of facts is not a presentation though. It's simply a collection of facts and that confuses us. Then when it's illustrated, the illustration is psychologically bad. We use text rather than images. People therefore read rather than listen and that overwhelms your cognitive process so you can't think. So the... Bloom's taxonomy, which is the concept of learning, fails at the very um, start in that we don't even retain the knowledge. I usually ask people, can you remember the last presentation you were at? And if you can, which very few, few people can, can you remember three facts? And the shameful thing is virtually none of us can remember the presentation, and very, very few people who can remember that can remember three facts. So... PowerPoint is not to blame. That's for sure. But the sad thing is that whilst we are of a generation where it didn't used to be that way, education has still been bad in the past because we always believed that the basis of education was knowledge. It isn't. It is the basis of understanding but you have to move beyond simply knowledge to using knowledge analyzing knowledge and progressing up bloom's taxonomy so many of us sat through lectures however they were delivered and learned nothing and what we have to recognize is that first of all the delivery of that is wrong Simply reading out PowerPoint does not work as education. But conversely, and this is the shame for us as audiences, is that sat there listening to that does not count as education either. We don't learn anything. So the revolution requires both the educators and the educated to change their approach. We can't expect to read stuff out as a method of teaching, nor can we expect audiences simply to listen and therefore have retained all the knowledge.
2: So one thing I love about your, the way that you talk about it, P1 is the story, and it kind of reminds me of I was recently asked to give a lecture for our residents, and I realized that I could spout out a bunch of facts, like when there were PDFs over what I wanted to talk about, but rather I took your, your approach, which is I found a story to tell, and then laced in facts based off of story to add emotion and to add pause and to add like actual deep memories of people with raw emotions. And I found that was really, really key, but why is it, why is it people forget that part? Cause I feel like, you know, it's, it's the base, it's the base of it, but we spend so little time on that part of it. Okay. So I think there's quite a lot
1: to unpack in that. The first thing that I'm slightly disappointed in is that I called it story. Uh, And I don't, I think it is more than story, but story has a part. So if I can come back to that part in a second, it is essential that we understand that particularly in education, it's not simply about delivering facts, but about persuasion and about explaining things to people. The example I use is uh, Ignat Semmelweitz, was the um, an obstetrician in uh, Vienna at the turn of the 20th century. And he discovered why the women of Vienna would not come to the obstetric clinic on the physician-led days. The The babies were dying at a 10 times higher rate than with the midwives on the other days. So the women would not come in, even in labor, if the physicians were on call, because they recognized they were going to die. Semmelweitz figured out why this was. He died 15 years later, insane, in a lunatic asylum of sepsis having been unable to persuade people why this was the case he had the facts but couldn't persuade people and he was the father of modern infection control he discovered that what was happening was the physicians were taking a something which turned out to be bacteria from the post-mortem rooms where they were doing dissection and basically giving it to the women and children and that's why they were dying the facts were clear he knew them But he could not persuade people. And that's where we need to change. Now, the second thing is that story, when we tell stories, that affects how we remember information. Now, most of us, if I say to you about a patient with PE or a a stab injury, you don't remember the list of facts from the textbook, but you remember the last unfortunate patient you had with that condition. Mm -hmm. You see their face, and that makes you think differently. The simple studies have been done that show if you measure salivary cortisol in people before you tell them a story and afterwards, it goes up dramatically and that affects how we retain information. Mm -hmm. So for most of us, we are, as clinicians, we are more affected by a case presentation or a difficult patient than we are by a journal article we read, which is a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial that shows how we should treat patients differently because story affects how we remember. So- that's a complex answer to your question. It's not just story.
2: It's it's basically the data. But if we use story, it is better retained. You know, a lot of people think that when they listen to your talk, I was at your talk at the teaching course in New York City 2016, and people in the audience, and myself included, said, well, I guess PowerPoint's the problem. So we just need to ditch PowerPoint. Is that really what you're – is that – I don't, that's not what you mean, because I've sat and talked since then. But w- when you say PowerPoint's the problem, what do you mean by PowerPoint?
1: So I, that's where I started. Yeah. I basically started growling about PowerPoint and how people use bullet points. And my um, phrase used to be, guns don't kill, bullet points do. And that was that was my view of it. But the more I thought about it, the more I learned to understand that the reason we use bullet points is because we want to list facts. It's a good way of listing facts. But... It's not that that is the problem. It's how we structure our talks. And so when I encourage people to change, it's not about restructuring a bad presentation, but about considering how we want to deliver the message. And so then when you have a single, identifiable, memorable message and structure that with supportive information, that will then be differently illustrated in the supportive media which is mostly for people, PowerPoint, and then you'll deliver it differently. And so it then will be retained. But the real sadness is that most people listening to this podcast, when they're asked to do a presentation, the very first thing we'll do is open their laptop, open up PowerPoint and start typing directly into it. And that is the problem. It's not PowerPoint or Keynote or heaven forbid Prezi. But it's the fact that we use that filter for our information to deliver it. And actually, the example I always give is if you ask someone what was the best presentation they've seen, they usually say it was when the professor turned up, her slide deck failed, and she just spoke to us. So that the use of that technology, the way that we use it, is what becomes the problem. It's not the technology. Nobody died because of PowerPoint, but because of the way we use it. Guns don't kill people, bullet points, potentially.
0: Moving forward from here, you take a concept of not using the technology to draw our presentation, but rather let the presentation then get drawn into technology, correct? So whether we call it storyboarding, mapping, brainstorming, there's multiple different concepts you can do, but mapping what your presentation is going to be without touching true technology, whether that's a true piece of paper I was sitting next to you today as you were polishing up the talk that you just gave, which is you were using technology to do it, but using it as if it was a piece of paper to get your ideas together, to to draw an outline. How do we translate that to technology to let technology augment what we're doing and make our message, our story, our presentation more impactful?
1: The question about digital or analog is valid because we think differently when we use digital media than when we use analog media. Now, let's, cha- let's translate that into real life. You write differently or draw or think differently if you're just doodling than you do if you are using technology. So you're, if you think about uh, using something as a mind mapping tool, you're forced into the way that the mind mapping tool works for you to mind map. Whereas if you just draw on a piece of paper back of an envelope, you can do whatever you like and then you can move things around and scratch them out. And actually the evidence and there is psychological evidence for this is that we think differently in doing that. Partly, it takes longer to write out a word using a pen and paper. And so your brain has a chance to do more thinking than it does if you're having to type that out. And you use different parts of your brain to do that. So the concept is that using analog allows you more creativity, whereas using digital, it restricts your creativity in a way that a lot of people aren't aware of. Now, Will that change in time? I think it will, because younger people can put their thoughts directly down into uh, social media or uh, whatever system they're using very quickly. And so they are less encumbered by looking around the keyboard for the key, and it becomes more subconscious. But the evidence is still clear that millennial thinkers think differently when they are writing than when they are typing whether it's typing or whatever you want to call it. And that affects our creativity. And that's, if I if I can do nothing more to release people is to say, put your laptop down and think about this. And then the what we did yesterday was we spent half an hour planning to write a presentation before we even started. And virtually nobody does that. We don't consider the audience, we don't consider their needs, we don't even understand the difference between aims and objectives, and we just write stuff down and then read stuff out. That's one of the reasons it fails.
0: I recently uh, cringed, I-, I gave a small talk at a national conference and had to list my objectives prior, you know, as part of the presentation, and and the thought of having to list this out on a slide actually would, like was a visceral bad response for me one because that entire slide took up more words than i used in the rest of the entire presentation Uh, but also it seems that i should be able to verbalize that i should be able to express that over the course of a talk and not have to not have to do that on a slide and really i don't really care what my objectives are because it's not how i'm gonna imply my message or impress my message onto the people that i'm talking to
1: there is a real difficulty that um the use of checklists for identifying educational needs becomes a straitjacket on what your educational needs are. The educational needs of an audience from a talk are not strict and limited within what you're doing. And that's why I try and show people that the aim to cover rapid sequence induction in a 10-minute talk is it's in itself insane. Your objective may be for your residents to be able to do an RSI in 10 minutes after they walk out the door. That's an entirely different talk than passing the board exams in rapid secrets induction. And we need to change what we want for the audience based actually perversely for most of us on what the audience wants. Now, we have to be careful that particularly data junkies just want a download. They'll say to you, I just want the facts. If this isn't in the exam, I don't care. But we recognize as educators and adult learners that there is more to use of that than simply knowledge. The books have all the knowledge. Not one book has ever saved a life. It's our interpretation of that data and our use of that data that will save a life. So we need to change things accordingly. How we want our audience to interact with that information and how they want it delivered. Because previously this idea that I will just read this out. My father is a professor, was a professor of business and he found his students were sending tape recorders because he's that old with their friends, which would occupy the front row. And so what these punters were doing was having their colleagues turn the tape recorder on, record the lecture, and then turn it off. So my father saved them the step, and he just would go along and turn all the recorders off and say, if you want to hear my lecture, you will sit there in the front row and hear my insights. Because we know that the knowledge is in the textbooks, in the blog posts, in the journals. That is freely available. What we value and what we get most out of is when you personally turn up and share your insights into that. That's what teaching and learning is about as opposed to just reading stuff
0: out to people. So how do you address then the learner? Maybe not as much in graduate medical education. I think most of our providers, our residents and fellows are interested in providing good care and along the way they're going to learn how to pass their board exams. But undergraduate medical education, or prior to being a resident, everything is based on passing that next step to become a resident. And so it's not about medical knowledge to take care of patients. At least that's not the real goal of the student. Well, it should be. The goal is to get to the next step where they can actually learn that. And I'm asked all the time by a third or fourth year medical student interested in emergency medicine, what's your advice in my waning months of uh, fourth year clerkship? And my advice is don't worry about it. I'm going to teach you everything you need to know when you show up to the hospital as a resident. Everything else beforehand is just preparing you to get to this step. So how do we reframe it so that they're actually trying to learn as opposed to just pass an exam?
1: It's difficult, and it will take a change in understanding from the learners. And part of that is that we just advise them. If you say that their belief is that all they need to pass the exam is the knowledge So if you add in the caveat, I will give you the ability to pass the exam and the knowledge, then that is more valuable. And the ability to pass the exam is not simply data retention. Because if there are a thousand facts and they only remember 999, the one that they're missing may be intrinsic. But if you can tell them which is the one essential fact, then that's different. And that's our role is to guide and coach educators, not just to tell them because actually as i said earlier all of the information is available somewhere else more efficiently and at a better time available place for them they can read the textbook at 3 a.m or six o'clock in the morning on the bus on the way in whereas you right now at 9 a.m in the hospital are here to facilitate their learning not to teach them and that is not just the corollary that is a different task
2: absolutely So for those people that are out there, you know, that are going to be asked to give a presentation, what are some simple tips you have outside of what can be found in your website? Simple
1: tips to improve a presentation. So start from the beginning. You need to understand your audience and what their needs are of your talk. And that is really essential. When you've got that, I strongly advise people to develop a single, identifiable, memorable message whether that's about uh, management of Hirschsprung disease in the under fives or rapid sequence induction. That can be done. When you have a single message, you then support that with information and perhaps identify problems with that, challenges. What's the latest research? Something that will make it interesting, having highlighted to the learner that all the information they need is available at the end of the presentation as a download, as a blog post, as a hot link, whatever you want to do. When you've got that, then it's much easier to illustrate that, to add to what I call the supportive media, something that will help make that talk go better and be more memorable without it being the data download. And then when it comes to delivery, you're free to go wherever it that takes you to go with the learner who suddenly says actually I have a master's degree in uh, anesthetic um, medicine let's talk differently as opposed to the uh, guy who says well I was a paramedic for 25 years I know this from a different reason and so then it becomes about the learner not about the teacher which sounds uh, grandiose but actually how cool is that Imagine you're a learner and you turn up and the person who's going to teach you wants to know what you need and how they can make that better. Isn't that cool? Rather than humiliate you by all the knowledge that they've got and you haven't. I think it's a valuable and interesting way to learn rather than be taught.
2: Those are perfect. Nice.
0: Ross, thank you so much for joining us on the Easy podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure and honor to sit next to you over the past couple days at the guy conference to learn from you firsthand and to have a chance to sit down and have a conversation with you and get this out to our listeners. Thank you for the work that you're doing and for joining us today. We appreciate it.
1: It's a real pleasure uh, and it's a privilege. I don't think I'm all that. I'm just somebody who thinks a lot about all that. So it's humbling and it's great to be involved. The the topic I had with Rob yesterday is that I think as educators we can save hundreds of lives whereas as clinicians we'll maybe save five. So it's it's a way of changing the world and if I can be part of that that's incredible. Thank you for the opportunity.